0: You know it is generally the case that the word garden has a pleasant connotation to it for one reason or another. If it is a uh, garden in which uh, vegetables grow that has a very pleasant connotation to it and we've always been blessed to uh, uh, be given really good things out of uh, people's gardens. They, uh, many of you have done that for us right here just uh, just Saturday afternoon I've got a neighbor uh, Uh, The Bells know him, Mr. Worthington, a couple of doors down, and he uh, invited me to come down and pick greens out of his garden back there. He has a raised garden, and so Kevin and I, Saturday afternoon, went down and picked greens for a while, and Janice fixed those up, and boy, they were good. And then when you think about flower gardens, uh, that has a beautiful connotation to it as well. Callaway Gardens or gardens of that nature bring to mind some very, very pleasant uh, thoughts as we think about the beautiful uh, flowers, and Jan Jenkins has taken beautiful pictures of uh, so many flowers and gardens, and uh, her cards are so beautiful, all of them, and uh, those with those flowers are so beautiful from gardens. But tonight I want us to think about some particular gardens that we read about in Scripture. The gardens that we read about in Scripture, and some lessons that I think we can certainly draw from thinking briefly about these particular gardens. And you might certainly anticipate with which garden we would begin our discussion uh, with the book of beginnings and the very first garden uh, that we read about, and that is the Garden of Eden. And specifically in chapter 2 of Genesis at uh, verse 7, Beginning, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from it, from there it parted and became four river heads. And he goes on to name those rivers, and then in verse 15, a few verses later, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And only by our imaginations can we uh, picture in any way just how beautiful that garden must have been. It had to be. God planted it. And so it had to be the most beautiful garden that has ever existed. And yet it was in that garden that man faced the serpent. A beautiful, beautiful place for Satan to be. Why would we expect to see him there and yet he was there? And yet one lesson we can draw from that is that in unlikely places Satan does show up. In fact, sometimes in congregations, doesn't he? And we read in the Revelation letter about some congregations there that the Lord through John the Apostle addressed in which Satan had made an appearance. Think about the church at Thyatira, for example, in Revelation chapter uh, 2, verse 18 beginning. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. That's quite a commendation, isn't it? But then verse 20 reveals, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants commit sexual immorality, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. And then he goes on to talk about what he's going to do. Right there in the midst of a congregation worthy of quite a bit of commendation, you find Satan. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, in effect, asks why should that surprise us? Read 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14, and 15 with me and, and see what Paul writes there. And no wonder, he says, after talking about false apostles in verse 13, deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And then in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 11, he goes on, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. It's no wonder, Paul says, that Satan himself transforms himself into angel of light and uh, his ministers into that kind of false presentation of themselves to deceive people. And exactly That happened, that's what uh, exactly took place in the Garden of Eden long ago. Satan, in the form of the serpent, appearing in the midst of that beautiful garden planted by God, and Eve succumbed to that temptation and influenced her husband to do the same. What God created for beauty and enjoyment, Satan marred by the introduction of sin. And the spiritual beauty of the church today is marred, isn't it, by false religion, by deceitful workers, by those even in the kingdom at times who lead precious souls astray. And so the Garden of Eden reminds us that Satan has no boundaries as to where he will make his appearance. And in fact, in the most beautiful places spiritually and in the most beautiful spiritual lives of individuals, that's where he will seek to infiltrate and to overthrow. But the Garden of Eden is obviously the first garden that we should consider if we're looking at the gardens in the Bible. But the second is the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you look at John's record in John 18, and of course Matthew, Mark, and Luke all relate the account of jesus in the garden as well but in john chapter 18 at verse 1 with jesus when jesus had spoken these words he went out with his disciples over the brook kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered if you go to jerusalem today you can visit the garden of gethsemane but there's no assurance that that is literally the same garden where Jesus uh, went, but they purport it to be the garden of Gethsemane, they call it that, and even within that garden, a very beautiful setting where there are olive trees that uh, they claim go all the way back to the time of uh, the destruction of uh, Jerusalem, or earlier than the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, if you think about that, those olive trees, if those are the same olive trees, they had to have grown back from the roots because the Romans leveled every tree within sight of Jerusalem, and that would have included those olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. So they're a little bit off, I think, there, unless indeed the root system was able to uh, be uh, revived after the Romans leveled and used all those trees for battering rams against the city of Jerusalem. But it's a beautiful setting, and in that Garden of Gethsemane, you find what is called the Rock of Agony. And it was supposedly on this large rock of agony, as it is called, where Jesus prayed three times the same prayer. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And yet he added, not as I will, but as thou will. The Garden of Gethsemane, a place of agony. Whether that is the actual spot or not, or whether that rock that is there is the actual rock, it doesn't make any difference. We know that indeed it was a place of agony, it was a place of, of sorrow. It was in that garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus felt the need of being alone because the text says he withdrew from his disciples. It was where he was in need of sympathetic understanding as he told the disciples to watch. And it was also a place where he needed help from God very desperately because he prayed, as we've just mentioned, three times in such fervent fashion that he sweat drops of blood as he prayed that this cup, this cup of suffering, this cup of agony, if possible, that it might be removed from him. It is difficult for the finite mind to fully comprehend the kind of agony that Jesus went through as he anticipated all that was involved in the cross and not really the physical agony or the physical suffering but the spiritual agony in a sense as he bore alone Alone, upon his sinless shoulders, the sins of all mankind. And the anticipation of that burden for the Son of God himself caused him the deepest possible agony because he no doubt anticipated that moment in time when the Lord God of heaven would allow him to suffer alone and bear the sins of mankind prompting the cry from Calvary, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is impossible for us to fully appreciate how deity, how deity suffered in anticipation and in the realization of that separation as he bore the sins of the world. Oh, the physical agony. Oh, yes, it's something that I think about and I would not want to endure at all. And I'm sure you would not as well. It was horrible. It was terrible. Everything associated with the trials, with the scourgings, with the humiliation, with the crucifixion itself, all of that was horrible. But what about the bearing of the sins of mankind? He anticipated that and angels assisted him in ministering to him on that occasion because it was a time of terrible, terrible agony. But you know, all of us, in a much smaller way, have our Gethsemanes, don't we? All of us, as we live this life, have our Gethsemanes. We have our trials. We have our challenges in life. We have our tribulations. But through prayer and through the Word of God and the help of brothers and sisters in Christ, we can overcome. We need that Word, don't we? Jesus himself, as you very well recall, I'm sure, needed that word and used that word in his temptation initially there with the devil that's recorded for us in Matthew, also in Luke, as he says what? It is written. Time and again, in each of the temptations, the response was prefaced with the words, it is written. It is written. The Lord Jesus Christ used the word of God. In the hour of temptation, why should we not think we should use it and understand the benefits of that word? And yes, understand the benefits, even as we have often talked about, even of our suffering and the strength that can be derived from that suffering. Remember James, James 1, 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience, but let... Patience have its perfect work that you may be complete and entire, wanting or lacking nothing. Wanting or lacking nothing. I love these words from a man named B.M. Launderville who wrote, The vine clings to the oak during the fiercest of storms. Although the violence of nature may uproot the oak, Twining tendrils still cling to it. If the vine is on the tree opposite the wind, the great oak is its protection. If it is on the exposed side, the tempest only presses it closer to the trunk. And then these words, In some of the storms of life, God intervenes and shelters us, while in others he allows us to be exposed so that we will be pressed more closely to him. That's how we have to make our trials and tribulations work for us. God doesn't shield us from every adversity. We know that. But he gives us all that we need to come through that adversity clinging even more closely to him than when we entered the trans, uh, the uh, trial or the tribulation. And I think those words although they are from a human being and not by inspiration, certainly comport with what inspiration teaches us about how trials and tribulations and challenges can make us better rather than bitter, without question. There's another story about a a young man who was trying to grow peaches, And so he invested everything he had in a peach orchard, and things were looking really good. The orchard blossomed wonderfully, and then there came an unexpected early frost. And it devastated the peach orchard. The next Sunday, he refused to go to worship, and the Sunday following. And the old preacher who preached in the congregation came to visit him to see what was the matter, and he said, I'm not coming anymore. How could I worship a God who cares so little for me that he would allow a frost to kill all my peaches? And the old preacher said very kindly to the young man, God loves you better than he loves your peaches. He knows that while peaches do better without frost, it is impossible to grow the best man without frosts. And his object is to grow men, not peaches. We need to understand that we need a little frost at times, or that we can expect some frost in our lives that comes unexpectedly and sometimes without warning. And yet, if we are prepared, through our strong and close familiarity with this book, and living our lives in accordance with it, and with the help and strength of others, Our Gethsemanes can actually make us stronger. Jesus came through his Gethsemane and he determined to follow through with his sacrifice. And oh, how thankful we are that he did. For if he had not, indeed, we would all at this moment in time be lost and without hope. But then there's another garden that we can read about in Scripture, and that's the garden of the grave. Look with me at John chapter 19. And in relation to the body of Jesus, you remember what took place there in John 19 41 and 42. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. If you go back to verses 38 and 39, you see who was responsible for this. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, verse 38, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And then we're back to the verses we read a moment ago, where there was the garden in which there was a tomb, in which nobody had ever been laid. The garden of the grave. Joseph and Nicodemus laid the lifeless body of Jesus in this garden. And it is a garden, oh, not that specific garden, obviously, but the garden of the grave is a garden that all of us, unless the Lord comes again, all of us will enter that garden. Every single one of us will enter the garden of the grave. It is appointed to men to die once, as we alluded to this morning, to Hebrews 9, 27, and after this, the judgment. It is appointed to man to die once we all have an appointment with death, and therefore all of us will one day enter the garden of the grave. And it is there in that garden that all earthly hopes die. But notice I said all earthly hopes die there. That's where our earthly hopes die, but it is there that eternal hope is born. That's where eternal hope Is born. Look in the same gospel record, John's record in John chapter 14, at verse 19. To the disciples who were despondent over his departure from them, Jesus, among other things, said this A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Because I live, you will live also. Look at First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That is a passage, and there's so many passages that tell us that while all earthly hope ends in the garden of the grave, that's where eternal hope begins. Yes, indeed, it is true that those who love God, those who love God and manifest that love through obedience to His Word never meet for the last time. And that for them, death is not a period, but rather a comma. And a lot of people have trouble understanding that or appreciating appreciating that or or believing that. It's like the man who was walking through the graveyard and saw on a tombstone an inscription that simply said these three words, I still live. And the man looked at that and thought, you know, if I were dead, I would at least be honest enough to admit it. (laughs) They don't get it. (laughs) They don't get it. They think that if we're dead, we are truly dead. The message on the tombstone was lost on that individual, but not on the individual who understands that truly, for the faithful child of God, the garden of the grave represents a comma, just a pause, a transition, but not not a period, not a period. And then finally... There's one other garden. But we logically look at, after we look at the garden of the grave, and we have talked about the fact that the garden of the grave is not the end of eternal hope, but only its beginning because of one other garden mentioned in Scripture, and that's the garden of God. The garden of God. Look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. In Revelation 2 and verse 7, we find these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Marginal reading there is the garden of God in some translations. I think the American Standard perhaps has that marginal reading, but... If you simply look at the word that is translated paradise there, the meaning is a pleasure park or a garden. Literally, that idea is expressed by the word in the original. The garden then of God, the paradise of God. And the paradise of God here, I believe, in this context, does not refer to the intermediary stage uh, where people find themselves among the righteous who have lived in paradise in the Hadean realm, But this paradise, this garden, is the eternal home of the soul. The final resting place. The garden of God. That is heaven itself. And for those who have lived their lives in obedience to God the Father, through Jesus Christ his Son, in that garden... There will be no marring of its beauty by Satan, as was the case with the first garden that God planted. Satan can't mar this one as he marred that one. Nor will there be suffering, nor will there be separation produced by the garden of the grave. But simply, beauty eternally, beyond comprehension, with nothing to lessen its attraction, a place of eternal bliss. Who will be planted, as it were, in that garden? God planted the Garden of Eden, but in the Garden of God, only a certain individual or type of individual will be planted there, if you will, And that individual is described by an anonymous writer under the title of Cedar Christians. And these are his or her words. Jesus, help me to be for thee just like a big, strong cedar tree. When all the other trees are bare, the cedar stands so green and fair. The wind and storm, the ice and cold make it more beauty to unfold. So I would stand in trial and test, just trusting you to do what's best. Though others fail, Lord, keep thou me. May I a cedar Christian be. A cedar Christian. Because you see, it's the cedar Christians who will be transplanted from here, if you will, into the garden of God. Where we will never again be uprooted but there forevermore, enjoying the beauties of that garden in ways that the finite mind cannot at this point in time fully comprehend. But we need to spend a lot of time trying to, thinking about it, looking forward to it, anticipating it, and making sure that we're the kind of Christians that will be able to be transplanted as it were in that final judgment and after that final judgment into that wonderful and beautiful and eternal garden of God. Are you that person tonight? Are you that cedar Christian? If not, we plead with you to become one, either by becoming a Christian, if you have not done that, obviously, then you would need to become a Christian by expressing your faith in Jesus as the Christ moving forward by faith to repent of your sins, to confess him as the Christ, than to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. And if you have done those things and have been that cedar Christian, as it were, but you know now that the storms of life, the struggles of life, the sorrows of life, the temptations of life have weakened you, and that you're no longer in a position to be transplanted into the garden of God, as it were, then you need to come home in repentance, confession of any sin that's public in nature that stands between you and that wonderful garden of God so that you can once again have that assurance, that hope, that anticipation of being there when this life is over. Will you come as we stand to sing?